We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining us for this episode is Bev Priestman. Really good insight into coaching in a major tournament with different countries, different tournaments, different staffs. Brilliant insight. Please let me know what you think. At Gary Kernin on Instagram, at Gary Kernin on Twitter. Two quick announcements. We have a new webinar coming up. Tomorrow, which is Tuesday, with Chris Little. Uh, Chris joined us in April for a webinar and unbelievable response. We had about 500 coaches on there. That's been over a thousand downloads as well. Uh, amazing insight that Chris gave uh, looking at the Seattle Sounders game model and then looking at how they organize their sessions. He's coming back for his second webinar. Tuesday 6 p.m. Eastern time and his topic will be game cues when looking to advance possession so I would highly recommend watching that there you can register now it's a free webinar you can register on the link is up on modern soccer coach twitter handle at msc education secondly if you enjoyed the webinars that we've done on modern soccer coach over the last six months we have put the 25 of the presentations together and they're now available for you to download on the Modern Soccer Coach shop. So we've taken them off the website and we're now putting them as a complete package. So you can have 25 webinars from coaches such as Nolan Sheldon, Istvan Beregi, Jonas Munkvold, John Wall, Marco Sullivan, Adin Osman Basic, Chris Little, Jack Brazil, Kat Smith, Leave You Bird, Jesse Marsh, Erwin Van Benekom, Radit Hanaskovic, Henrik Jensen, Sergio Gonzalez, Lloyd Yaxley. All these presentations are available now, 25 of them, all for you to download and keep yourself for only $30. If you've really enjoyed them and you want a copy for yourself, they are not available for free anymore, but... To support Modern Soccer Coach, keep us going, keep the webinars coming. It's only $30. So a nice little contribution to, to keeping all the webinars going. And again, you get to keep them all for yourself as well. Have them on file, watch them whenever you want. So I hope you enjoy that. ModernSoccerCoach.com slash shop. You can go there and get your lockdown webinar series right away. So thanks so much for your support. Here is Bev. Enjoy. Thank you, Bev, for coming on. Really, really excited to chat. Thanks for having me, Gary. My first question, I enjoy putting these questions together um, because obviously following the, the 2015 World Cup and, and the, the one last year, um, different types of pressure, different type of exposure. Two teams that have followed very, very closely were Canada and England. Um, you were obviously there firsthand. So on the preparation side, I wanted to ask you, I mean, what was... How did both camps differ in their preparation? 
Yeah, it's a good question and probably has been the main difference, really, um, from both sort of sides. I think Canada, you know, the NWSL season, I, I do think that that promotes going into a major tournament in the summer because what I found with England is that you come at, they're coming off the back of a really heavy season with Champions League, etc. So our build-up was very different in Canada. It was more of a residency programme. So had the players for, you know, for a significant amount of time due to the NWSL season and then they're obviously coming into it, ramped up, ready to, to go to a major tournament. With England, we decided because of the the um, the calendar, the domestic calendar and players in Champions League, etc., we went for more of a mini camp model. So we were in four or five days, players go home for two or three days, come back in. And the premise was was that basically by the day 52 of, of a major tournament, how fresh is that player going to be off the back of a season? So it was very different, uh, probably different outcomes as well. Um I think when you have those mini camps, it's all about hard work, intense work, go away, refresh, come back in, hard work, go away, refresh. I think when you're in a residency model, um, you're working on yourself, tactical adaptability, and you're working on, on different concepts. So very different. And, and obviously the home World Cup with Canada, you've also got the added home pressure it's in your face, you know, for the four years leading up to it. It's it's there fr from the outset. So two very different experiences and um, both unique and, and different in, the, in their own right. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to the pressure questions later on. But in, in the tournament format, and we're all, I suppose, accustomed now with mainstream media, with the 2010, especially the World Cup that England go to South Africa and apparently get bored stupid in a camp. Yeah got every gadget for every player, to, you know, all the computers, blah, blah, blah. In that tournament format, how do you get the balance right between this relaxation and looseness and then that intensity and focus on the details that you're going to need? I think it's actually the key to teams that win major tournaments. I think um, a lot of time needs to be spent, I think, when you go into a major tournament planning. And it's not the exciting thing. We all want to be on the grass uh, working every day, but... We spent a lot of time, I can still remember the World Cup planning meetings at St. George's Park with England. Um, we spent a lot of time scrutinising the schedule and understanding why Why have we put that there? Is that put yourself in the player's shoe? Is that what they really need? And essentially what I think the, the main thing is, is being brave. So by day 52 of a major tournament, the brave thing to do for me would be to actually give them days off. And a lot of coaches, you know, we we're all want to win. We're all competitive. You have a tendency to cram and think, oh, but we need that extra session. We're going to play US in the semi-final. Like, we need, we need extra time on the grass. And actually, I thought in the summer, the brave things we did, we gave players time off. Um, our match day minus three, so you imagine you play. Match day minus four is sort of recovery, top-up players that didn't get what they needed. And then match day minus three throughout the tournament, not every time. We dropped that in there based on location, based on, you know, how many accumulated days we'd had. And then you sort of ramp back into match day minus two where they need to tune in and, and tune out. And then I, I think the second thing is players recover and need different things. So if I look in, in the England setup, you, you'll see online, I mean, Jill Scott loves a cup of coffee. That's her relaxation is to go to a coffee shop and, and relax other players their feet are up and they're, they're in a bed relaxing. And then other players are more 24-7, like Nikita Paris, Tony Duggan, 
So there's, there's a group basically that are only different things. And I think as coaches, we have to recognise that because it's not a one size fits all approach, really. Yeah, on that uh, days off there, we've, we're all finished the Michael Jordan, that 10 part series. And then you've got the clip of him. I think he's on the golf course and he's basically saying a younger coach would have had us training right now. Yes. Well, no, to give it. How much when you when you is that another balancing act then that the the balance act of planning and then that intuition to say look at someone in the eye and say hey they they might need a day here. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's the big thing. We put all this time into planning, and I remember us saying at the time like this is going to change when we get there. Like why are we spending all this time? But the reality is, I think the best coaches can read players, can read their gut, know if the session or the spark in their eye in a meeting isn't there. Like, I think that's the adaptability. And then you you also have the relationship in your culture where we, we had a captain's group and, and it was the same in with Canada where you have that sort of player-coach relationship where you get that sort of feedback and it can't all be one way because they ultimately have to step on the pitch and perform under pressure. Mm. Did you go to other sports in any account where it was trying to get... I mean, was the priority to engage the players or was it like, listen, their downtime, if they want to, like you mentioned there, if they want to go for a coffee, they want to sit at all. Mm. Like, was that something that you also looked at? Yeah, and I think some of it, you know, Phil, obviously, in his experiences in the men's game, I think it was a big learning for him because essentially when, when it was said rest time in the schedule, he was like, well, you know, they should be in their rooms with their feet up, relaxing. But I think the culture and particularly more in the women's game I feel it's they call it coffee club you know the girls like to sit around have a chat and and I'm the same that's my relaxation is to sort of just so I think it's it's a sort of a two-way process and over time we over the camps probably back end of the year before we started to tweak and change and what does rest look like when is a compulsory rest when is it you know in your own time get away do what you need to do and I think we got the real good balance of of feedback from players to to get that right and I would say on day we didn't get the 52 we got the 51 of that major tournament I would say it's the freshest I've been it's probably the freshest some of the other players have been and I think we did get that bit right brilliant um whenever assistant coach relationships and so many different roles, so many hats you wear as assistant coach, but I suppose a big one is always this consistency of the buffer between, you know, the players and the head coach. And uh, curious to get your thoughts on international football doesn't give you that time to, I suppose that club football gives you that natural time to build these relationships with players. Mm -hmm. How do you do that leading up to tournaments from a personal point of view? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. I think, um, I look at this sort of two ways. One, I think it's understanding what the head coach is like and what they might need around them. And I also think it's how you operate away from the environment. So I touch it two parts. If I look at the sort of roles and so, so Phil is very good and he has a great relationship with players. Um, so arguably, if you've got a head coach who's like that, your assistant maybe doesn't need to be as much like that. If I compare... When I was a head coach in, in Canada with the youth system, I had ex-players, a lot of ex-players, Candice Chapman, Carmeline Namaskato, uh, Rian Wilkinson. When you've got those sorts of assistants, they were great at getting around the players, which meant that as a head coach, I was more in the trenches, you know, tech, tactics, etc. 
But I think if, if you've got more of an analytical assistant, then maybe as a head coach, you, you're the one who builds the relationship. So I think you all, as a team, you look for certain, as you know, different, different staff members. So with Phil, I think I've got that balance where I don't actually have to be that conduit because he actually has a really good relationship. But we value it a lot, both of us, whether I was a head coach or assistant coach. I don't think these days you can get the best out of players without having that relationship. So a lot of my relationships and, and Phil's would be, we go to the games every week. We connect with the player after a game. So they know we're watching. They know we care. And I think that's a big part of coaching. And then we also work a lot on um, individual development plans away from camp. So you get that sort of dialogue a lot between camps. And then on camp, I think just culture where you'll sit and have a coffee with the player and it's in relaxed time and it's not all about about coaching. So I think what you do away from international coaching is actually a lot of your job, um, not just, just on camp. Yeah, I want to go back there to like, when you go watch a player, so say you go and watch Jill and she plays against Arsenal. Yeah. Um, is it, do you grab her after the game? Is it a call? Is it a text? Or how does that work? Yeah, I think mainly we, we sort of let them do their club thing after a game. Um, so it's normally a text or a call. Um, you know, it could be immediately after. Sometimes it's just a great game. Mm. Other times they've asked for specific feedback and, you know, you, you, you're going in depth. So I think it varies, but generally we'll leave them with their club. We don't want to interfere, obviously, with what their club coaches have asked of them. But, you know, when we're watching them, we're looking for the things that we've sort of sat down with them and said, these are the areas you need to improve. So that that's always sort of a Sunday, Monday. That's sort of uh, how we operate, really. Mm. You said in an interview that uh, John Herdman and Phil's both two different, very, very different style of coaches. I was curious to see, were, were there, and if so, where were the similarities with the way they wanted to build their environments with the teams? Yeah, it's a really good question. They they are very different and probably have come from very different backgrounds and experiences to get them where they are today. So if you say, where are they similar? I think I'd have to say they're both winners and winners in different ways. How they go about trying to win might look different, but I would say definitely winners where they're at it 24-7. Um, you know, both find it very difficult to switch off from the game, very obsessive. Um, in, in making sure that everything's right for, for competition, etc. So I would say probably that, in that they both have that sort of winning mindset and, and the details are important to them. I think that's probably the, the similarities. The differences are probably more the management styles, even how they might tactically approach the game. But I think naturally some common traits in good leaders, they're, they're winners for sure. Mm. The early morning runs that you did with England. Like I noticed this with, um, I think Gareth Southgate did it with his staff as well, where they get yeah. up and they all do it together. Um, I mean, can you talk a bit about what that what that does, I suppose, with consistency of messaging and also then what that does with relationships with staff? Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny, even going back to Canada, I remember the 2016 Olympics in Rio. I lost so much weight in that Olympics because every morning, six o'clock, meet John at the lift and we were out and it was the only way when you think about especially Olympics it's tighter turnarounds so you're absolutely exhausted and, and the travel etc so it was the only way for me to be able to perform because I, you're just so tired and I find as you know exercise it energizes you and then coming to England it's been something actually in the lockdown I think we're in week 10 week 11 
Phil, every Saturday morning, we've had the staff Lioness's hit session. So his brother Gary's personal trainer, she'll do a hit session with us. All the staff are on, their their partners, wives, husbands, even kids sometimes. And we do this crazy hard hit workout. And we've done like Barry's boot camps. And, and a big part of the culture on, on camp is that, you know, attack of the day is sort of his philosophy. He, you know, him, his wife, his family, they're up before five every morning. Um, but the workout, I think it's more than just sort of, you know, part of the culture. I think wh- when you when you set your alarm to, to go and work out with staff members, if you don't turn up, you're letting them down. That's how I personally feel. It's a way that all the staff come together, they connect, it's competitive, we all want to win. Even now we're texting our 5K sort of scores to each other. I just think it breeds sort of high performance because we know that it makes you better. It's a way of connecting. You sit around, have a coffee afterwards, have breakfast, everyone turns up at the same time. I just think it's, it's you know, for, for when I'm a number one again in the future, it'll be a big part of, you know, it can be walking. It doesn't have, you don't have to be the fittest person in the world, but I do think it, it it's a habit and it's it's discipline and it, it's part of being a, in a high performance environment. Mm. You mentioned there before about the, the coach today has to be able to connect. Is that another necessity of connecting on a physical, almost on a, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm in a growth period as well kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I even think like, you know, when you're, you're working out and you're exercising, you're having a coffee afterwards. I always catch up with a goalkeeping coach afterwards with a coffee as an example. That's where you have all your ideas mm. and you connect or you'll say, I've been thinking about yesterday's session. We need to connect in with so-and-so. You have all your best ideas in their moments. So I just think it, it promotes high performance and just connecting, really. Mm, brilliant. All right, moving it now to bench life. What's, I mean... And again, I think this is something that we should. I'm fascinated about having been an assistant coach, because you think whenever you're watching games that everyone's just waiting for something to happen until you do it, you realise that there's there's actually work to be done down there. Mm. What what's your role are are in in that there? Once the game starts, what are you looking for, and what are you trying to, I suppose, get the info on when the game goes? Yeah, I think um, just to give some context probably for those listening, the, the way we work at England, we've got Phil, myself and the goalkeeping coach down on the bench and actually now an analyst with the new rules from, from the World Cup. Then we have another coach up in the, we call it sort of eye in the sky and, and an analyst up there. And and our goalkeeping coach has um, got a AUP in and gets information down. I think with that context, my role during the game is to be one step ahead. That's how I'd summarise it. So games kicked off. We've got information coming down, which is very objective. But I would like to think, and I've had this debate in my head around where am I best suited. I think on the bench, I've, I've lived a lot of experience as a head coach on the side of a pitch. And I think that smell or that gut feel, as well as seeing what's happening in front of you, I can anticipate because of experiences that you've been through around this I can see they're doing this or it feels like we've had a lot of transitions in the last five minutes. We need to take care of this. So I would say my role is being one step ahead on, on what's happening and digesting that. My next thing is probably to read what information Phil needs and if he needs it, because I know I've been a head coach where you're on the sideline in international tournaments where there's pressure, scrutiny, big moments, and it can be too much clutter. 
because you can't actually think. So I would say what I've got to be very good at is reading what he needs, when he needs it. If an incident's happened three or four times, I'm like, right, need to address that. If it's happened once, I just tend to leave him. Um, so one step ahead, read emotion. What does he need? How concise can I be? And then how much can I tap into the goalkeeping coach next to me who's getting the information from, from upstairs, really? So that's... That's probably the, the, the biggest thing on the side. And then obviously the, another big component of that is preparing subs and even giving them the final messaging and, and everything that goes with that, um, which is a skill in itself. You know, recently we gave some debuts to some very young players and the same in Canada. In their moments, knowing what those kids need to hear, you know, you're going on against US, you're 18 years old. You know, they've openly said to me, I'm absolutely, you know, and in those moments, I think it's the calm, collected, actually just go and do what you do best and giving them that, you know, and reading that. And I think that's that's the art of it, really, being on the side of the pitch. I think you've got to have that gut feel. We'll just take a quick break here. Coaches, a reminder that the lockdown webinar series, 25 webinars that we did over the last six months, over one hour each with the presentations from the coaches and the guests and then all the Q&A with the coaches in attendance. We have 25 of them from coaches such as Michael Hamilton, Oliver Gage, Jonas Monkville, John Wall, Marco Sullivan, Joey Lombardi, Dean Osman Basic, Jack Brazil, Levy Bird, Kat Smith, Jesse Marsh, Henrik Jensen and five goalkeeper presentations as well. 25 presentations for only $30. Available now modernsoccercoach.com slash shop. 25 presentations works out at just over $1 per webinar. Yours to download and keep forever. Thanks so much for supporting Modern Soccer Coach. Back to Bev. You've fulfilled many roles, tournament settings. You mentioned there the being upstairs, observing mm -hmm. from a higher vantage point, assistant coach on the bench, yeah. head coach. Uh, how do all three of these interact and how do they vary towards the halftime impact? Yeah, and I think that's a good point because really I think the best teams and the best coaches use their half time. Like I think it can go and win you games. It can cost you games. So I think the interaction of all of those parts going into half time are really important. So um being up in the sky, call it eye in the sky back in Canada, is you, you were very more, you, you could remove the emotion. You were just watching. It was like watching it on a video, really, a tactical video. You're just watching the X's and O's and you're basically going, right, five minutes in, yep, their shapes as is. I'm going to put that down on the radio. You know, you're a bit more sort of, you, you've got a script that you're working through that you're impacting down on the bench. I would say bench, obviously, is all emotion or it can be emotion if you let it. But going into half-time, I think um, the key is is the simplicity at half-time. And I think this is actually where Phil is at his best. So if I look at the interaction of how we tend to work going into half-time is we'd have three points in possession, three points out of possession, written down and probably 10 minutes before we go in. Phil isn't engaged in this. He's managing the game. Myself, the goalkeeping coach, the, the coach upstairs, we're radioing to the analyst to go into the changing room and sort a list right, we need to take care of these three things in and out of possession so that when we walk in as a coaching group and Phil might have all this emotion as well and he's got to be able to event in those sort of four minutes, it's up there and it's, there's no sort of like, you can go off on tangents, I've learned the hard way that 
at half time before you know it, the players have been sat for 12 minutes waiting for you to go and impact them. So we have a really good process that there's the sort of objective. Phil will digest that or he'll say, what do you mean by that? He'll then go, I'm going to address these one or two things. And a lot of the time with Phil, again, I think this is where he's brilliant. It's sometimes just emotion. And actually, as the assistant, as soon as he's finished talking, I'll go and then pick on some of the little details or individuals of the wider things that we've put up on the board. And even in Canada, John was very big, and I was as a head coach, at even shown clips at halftime um, to, to impact the players. So I think all, the key is, for me, all three roles have to interact and there has to be a process around it. Otherwise, like I say, before you know it, the halftime's over and actually the players have left with probably tens and thousands of messages as well as all their emotion that they're carrying for the game and they're exhausted in a tournament with heat, etc. So I think those interactions are really key and I think probably it can be underestimated how good it is having a process. Yeah, something that's not talked about enough, is it really? Like how to be a good no. coach? Yeah, but you know what? It, it is true, game day coaching is its own, particularly in tournament settings, I think, because of the, the nature of it, extra time, everything. Penalty processes, again, the roles of those those people in those moments. We had a set process that if we got a penalties, who would stand where, who would do what. I think that's the planning that you, you go through. So was there a process? The, the, the toughest one I always found was extra time. Mm. In college, they have it automatically. So you, get it, you might get it five times a season over here. And um, personally, I'd always get there and I'd say, I don't know what to say now because we've got a decent result here. Do we go yes. win it? Do we not? Uh, yes. I mean, is that a pre-plan based on game? Is that because yes. there's so much emotion in that one, right? Yeah, and I think you know we always do. It's same in Canada, same in England. What if planning beforehand? And when you're in a knockout round, that's what you start to plan for. You know, you what's the momentum like? What subs might you need? Um, these are all the planning that you do before because again, what I've learned probably the hard way is when you're playing, let's say US, in them games, seconds count and you haven't got time. We sat there thinking, oh, we need to now chase the game. So let's go three at the back. And you, you can't be sat there working out who goes where. You need to have that pre-planned or at least to a point where there's flexibility and gut feel and everything that goes with it. But I think the, the planning part of game day coaching, again, I think you're right. It's a, it's a skill in itself. And only when you accumulate experiences. I remember my first World Cup, I was in a knockout against Ghana, red card, like all these moments that, you know, and luckily enough, then I had all the planning done beforehand. If I didn't, these are the sorts of um, lessons that you learn a lot along the way. Yeah, so, and I won't ask you to go into it, but an example of that could be whenever the game, uh, it was a Cameroon game that was kind of, the it just went completely off script. Did that then allow you to kind of move them back into a state at halftime and help you? Yeah, and I think, again, we focused on the process and, and some of our values as well. I think, actually, that was a massive cultural moment because we got to display our values by how we acted on the pitch, no matter what was happening. I remember it's the most bizarre game I've ever been involved with, you know, sat. I remember Phil saying, I sent to Phil on the, the bench, like, what, what do we do here? Like, and I'm getting wound up. And he actually said to me, Bev, just, just leave it. Just, you know, and I think that calm and composure and, yeah, th those moments, actually, those experiences, 
if I come up against that in the future, I've actually experienced it. And I know that the way we handled ourselves actually helped us. It didn't hinder us because very easy in those moments to, to react in a certain way. Brilliant. Uh, okay, last few, and then I'll, I'll get a couple from the, from the coaches on here. Looking towards, I mean, we just talked before we went on air about the growth of the league, and then you've also got, you mentioned there about the young English players that are now making their debut coming through. When you look at that, I suppose, just about to turn professional, I'm always really fascinated by ages 16 to 18, what are you looking, what are the key areas that you're looking for those young players now in the in English game to develop as they progress towards world-class standards? Yeah, it's a good good point, actually. In a lot of my experiences in Canada, that was sort of my remit, really. My, my core role was to look after youth teams in the system and progress players through into the first team. And what I learned very quickly is, and it's a little bit different here in England, I think for a young player to accelerate early, so if I think about for, for the North American audience, it'd be like Jesse Fleming. Mm-hmm. You know, she was 14, 15, Jordan Heitner in Canada. Now you're Georgia Stamways and, and Lauren Hemp, people like that. What I learned very quickly to do it early, and it, doing it early isn't the only way, I, I've learned that you have to be exceptional at something. So, for example, uh, uh, Jesse Fleming was technical, very technical. She was exceptionally technically gifted in a team that needed some technical sort of excellence. Jordan Heitemer, physically absolutely gifted. Lauren Hemp, gifted physically. So to be exceptional in an area, I think, as a young player, and, and, and if you are, you have a chance to accelerate quicker. But I think that doesn't mean that that's the only way. And actually going through progressively might set you up better long-term to, to be in a, in a system. So what do I look for in youth players? I think what I've learned is that young players do extra. Those young players that are hungry and do extra go all the way and they have some self-responsibility. So if, if you if you run a session and a player turns up and, and their mindset is, well, all right, I just rock up to this session or, you know, what are you going to do for me in this session? If you reverse that and go, well, what are you going to get out of this session? What have you turned up to actually get out of the session? Those players who have that sort of... Um, in a drive, who who have clear goals, know where they're going. And, and as coaches, our job is to help them obviously establish those things. But I do think self-responsibility, hunger is really, really important, not just talent, which, you know, I'm speaking to people who obviously know this. Um, and bravery, I think, is another key component that I look for. Players who are brave to get on the ball, even when, let's say, the ball's been given away three or four times in a row, I'll always look for the player who goes to get it again because I actually think those brave players are the players that in the future you're going to need in big moments. So I think um, exceptional in a few areas, um, that sort of added desire, like I look now, I'm working with pros who always, not one-offs, after every session will do extra and they'll stay and they'll take 10 free kicks and that's part of their routine and they have it pre-established. Those are the players that go all the way because... You've been taught in your career to work harder. Always working harder gets you somewhere. But what I've learned probably over the recent times is it's actually habits, mm. habits that are formed. And, and I think the best players have like a schedule or a preset habit and everything leads to something. They're doing it for a reason. So I think to sort of build them habits in young players is really important. But I do think you can see that desire and hunger that, that actually will, will always overtake talent. Yeah, it's funny that where it's 
there was in any culture, everyone's looking for it. Do you think now with the league, you know, now you're getting experienced, more experienced players that are coming, as much as you've got youth, you also have that, uh, the older pro. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they're obviously showing the younger groups as well now in club settings how to go about. Has that been beneficial? Absolutely. You look at, I'll use Man City women as an example, only because I've seen it firsthand when I went down there. Is you've got someone like Steph Horton, and she'll be the example I use every practice. We, we, we do extras in England, either before or after the session, where players can go and work on their own areas. And whether we planned it or not, and we say, oh, well, today it's a bit lighter, Steph Horton wants to take 10 free kicks. That's, that's her mindset. I turn up to City, it's exactly the same. She does it every single day. And then you've got young players coming through Lauren Hemp, Georgia Stanway in that environment. They see that. They know that that means success. Like it, and, and I think, you know, at times we can be too eager to sort of write off older players. I think they've got a massive, massive role in actually forming the future of the, the next player. So I think if I go back to the Olympics with John in um, Rio for the second bronze medal, that's what he did really well. He blended the youth and the hunger with the sort of veterans who, who have all them values and, and hard work and the women's game, you know, they've come through times where it wasn't where it is now. And I think put those two things together and actually you'll start to generate a culture that you need in the future. Brilliant. Pressure, something that just goes along with, I mean, you have the home, the home tournament, or the home country in 2015, England at a tournament anyway, just equals pressure. But... I think every coach today is under some form of it, either from themselves or from an AD or from a director of coaching. What are what do you think are some ways that coaches can help players deal with the pressure without lumping it on them? Mm. I think how you approach the pressure is really important. I think you know it's 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 a cliche really, but I think focusing on the process is really really important. I think. You know, in recent times, it's well known that the media in England, with the England team, has been, you know, it's, there's been a lot of scrutiny there. And I think the danger is, is that with that, I don't think players can individually develop or a team can develop when you've got that much pressure if you let it in. And I think to, to, to progress and to sort of want to learn and be better you've got to try and move that pressure away. And how you do that is focusing on the process, how individual sort of goals are leading to the next goal is, is really important. So if I was working with a young player who was feeling the pressure and going into a, I don't know, 50,000 crowd, which happens regularly at international football, I'd be focusing on what are your strengths? What makes you you? So I'll always say to players, you know, if you give the ball away in that moment, what's the one thing you bring to this team? Why, you know, so let's say it's Lauren Hemp, she just blitz a fullback. Mm. And I'm saying, Lauren, next time you get the ball, just run. Just get at that fullback because that's her identity and nobody can take that away from her. And I think that's, that's the key is making players confident, making them clear who they are so that in those moments, no matter what's happening, they can control that and they can always go back to those big, big moments and apply what they do and do it well. Mm, brilliant. Uh, Matthew has asked... The, the one we, we can always get, at, and it's always a really good one, young coach wants to aspire, what, what advice would you have? Yeah, it's a good question. I think what I've learned is different coaches take different paths. So 
you know, you've got the sort of ex-player path, you've got the, the paths that where coaches have sort of had to, you know, study the game. And the, you've got other paths which it just sort of comes together and you've you've got people who, who know people and it's sort of, there's different doors that open, but I think if one door doesn't open, go and knock on the next door. That would be my key. The other thing would be brave. So in my career, I've moved to the other side of the world, to New Zealand at the age of 21. I've taken big jobs that, you know, anybody on the outside might have said, mm, is she ready for that young female in a male sort of world? Um, so I think bravery is a big component of that. And I think know what you're good at. It's probably what I just said about the player and knowing your identity. I think know what you're good at and, and make that a super strength. I think we always try and sort of add to our weaknesses and I always will. But I do think you have to know what your strength is and make it a super strength. And anybody you come into contact with, player, employees, whatever it might be, make sure they know that that's your super strength from very early on. Fantastic. Joe always gives us a good question on these. Um, the challenges with so obviously monitoring physical performance, those ADPs whenever players are away. Yeah. Are there challenges with players that are abroad, Lucy, Nikita, Tony, who are dealing with foreign clubs and a different style of football? Yeah, I think there'll always be. There's a lot of strengths and challenges. You know, we we've been out to Leon in the example you've used, and it's culturally very very different. But I think what the best players do, you know, I'll use an example of Lucy Bronze. I don't think it would matter what club she went to. She would maximise the environment she was in because she'll do the extras, which I've, which I've spoke about. But I think it's actually really good if I look Nikita. She's from, you know, she's from Liverpool, very homebody. Um, she's gone out and been brave, which is something I just talked about. She's learning the language. She's been in an uncomfortable set. She's got out of her comfort zone. Um, so I think it's actually adding to them as, as people, not just players. Um, but I think there is challenges. There'll always be challenges based on their environment. And I think the culture we would try and create is no matter control what you can control. Rob's asked a good one. I don't know why I didn't think of this. Um, the difference in quality of opposition in 2015-2019, where did you see the tactical progressions or physical progressions in the, in the overall tournament? Yeah, I think um, more high-speed runs would be the physical progression. So it's a bit of emphasis we've been putting on with our players is, can we get more high-speed runs? And then I think the the second thing is, you would have seen teams were defensively way more solid, less goals were scored. Um, so I think you have to be more tactically adaptable with the ball, more rotations. I think that the game is way more tactical and way more physical. And I think... You know, going to the next World Cup, it will be even tougher for, for you know, there was one one big scoreline um, that there was a bit of a blowout. But other than that, it was it was really tight. Mm. Brilliant. Um, let's see. Gabe's asked about going back to that half time um, about you said the positive impact in the game. How do you talk about processes how would you then review that process after the game to know whether that was a successful halftime team talk or not yeah it's a great question and probably some of our processes were born out of those reviews that we did um i can always remember it was my first camp with england we were actually five the world cup under quite a bit of pressure and actually our half time the reality of where we were we actually had to have our um our half time outside 
through the nature of the stadium, which is not something that you gen generally used to. And after that, we did a big review about what that looked like. So I think we match day plus one, we always do a game day review. How did it go? What were the subs like? Were the subs right? Half-time process. I just think it's part of that evolving cycle because there's always a situation every tournament that hasn't happened to you before and then you plan for it for the next one. Yeah. Um, when would that, because I'm always curious on that, like when, is there a cooling off period between the game? Like when does the staff kind of reconvene and, and go through that detailed uh, review? Yeah, I think everyone's different. So if I speak about the goalkeeping coach who I work with in England, he has to watch the game that night, as an example. I'm the opposite. I can get up at four o'clock the next morning, fresh as a daisy to review the game. So I think, again, it's adapting to how people... I have to come down before I can go back up again. So I think generally what we'll do is we'll have to meet the night match day plus one evening because then you start planning your next three days, the squad... Um, the game review, which we're presenting to the players because we've all gone away and watched it in our relevant areas. So that cooling off period is probably the next morning, sort of mid midday, and then that evening you sort of you're in again. But in all reality, in a tournament setting, you don't get much time. You, you get your evening, but then you've got your tasks to get on with. But collectively, as a group, it's probably the the night after. Where have you seen the biggest growth in? support staff has it been on the physical side the analysis side like where have staffs been expanded well actually in in, in my current setup i would say it's actually been more media commercial like because the games become more professional there's much more media um presence at tournaments etc for me personally being at the 2011 world cup with new zealand to now 2019 the the difference in what was needed to be able to deliver a high performance sort of program was totally different and I would say that side's definitely has more you know you've got players who have sponsorship deals who have requests left right and centre in the middle of a tournament you've got to manage that I think that side on the women's game has been a big shift um, and then you, you're right like the the uh, physio physiology uh, psychology analysis I think analysts have a massive role to play um, I know for sure if, if I was to go on somewhere tomorrow that'd be a massive part of, of getting someone to get the best out of me would be someone I, I could trust on that analysis side, really. Mm, brilliant. Um, okay, last couple. You've kind of answered this, but maybe a different twist. What advice from Chloe? What advice would you have for a young female coach trying to make it in the female game? Yeah, I think I've, I've sort of answered around know who you are, know what you bring. I think confidence is massive. Um, and, and I do think confidence in our game can be really high and really low. And it, you know, you can feel on top of the world one minute and bottom of the world the next. I would say try not to get too high and too low and sort of, you know, enjoy the moments, of course. But I think that sort of level headedness around you, your own confidence and know what breeds confidence and what doesn't. Over time, the more you know yourself, you know that certain things you need to do to make sure that you stay confident. But at the same time, when to be confident and when to develop yourself and, and trying to get the, the balance right. Brilliant. Um, last one for me then. Would you mentioned there about knowing yourself and then the this break? I mean, has there been key areas that you've looked to improve or or learn a bit more about individually, or have you just yeah. been as many as possible? <laughs> Do you know what I was saying this before we got on air that this is probably the first time in my career actually I've worked in full time football from the age of sort of twenty one 
and, and have been to major tournaments, national organisations, where it's just go, go, go. This is the first chance I've had to really stop. I've reflected a lot. I've listened to a lot of podcasts, um, leadership, high performance, um, and just varied. I, I used to read a lot, but because I've got a little one, you find less time, but a podcast you can do while you're washing the dishes, as an example. Um, so I, I've definitely reflected a lot, and I've listened to a lot of different ways of doing things. Um, so I wouldn't say I've done anything in a specific area. I've sort of gone gone after a whole raft of things. And just, you know, you, you always have to sharpen I think what happens is if you're not careful, you you get into it on a hamster wheel where you just you go and you go and you go because you don't have time. I, th- I think sharpening up is what I learned. I probably need to schedule that in my year, um, in my own development. To say right, I'm going to take this period to just sharpen again. I've really enjoyed it. You must enjoy the accessibility with the women's game growing what it is, and obviously those environments getting better, and then also. The, the men's game in the Premier League and even the Championship mm. um, rugby. I mean, it is a, England is a is a fantastic place to get those little workshops here and there. Absolutely, I've listened to uh, Brendan Rogers. You know, at the LMA, I've I've been on a few webinars again in this period. Um, went to the Champions League before. You know, with Chelsea Bayern. Um, had to do a sort of study for my for my pro license with that, and work with some some great coaches from you know from England and around the world. So I do think it is the football culture that sort of I've been out of. There's totally different ways. I, for example, even looking at the men's side in the England setup, you know the men's youth coaches they have in and out of possession specialist coaches tapping into them. Like I do, I think it's a it's a great really hub to to tap into lots of knowledge. Fantastic, fantastic. Bev, thank you so much. We're out of time. Um, I can't, this has been phenomenal. We've moved in a couple of different directions the bench, your development, and then player development as well. So um, hopefully, we'll see you out on the pitch again very, very soon. I bet you're dying to get out there. So, really, yeah. appreciate giving up your, your, your afternoon with the family and, and uh, giving us some insight. No, I really appreciate it, Gary. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Thanks so much for listening to the interview. Huge thanks to Bev for coming on. Before you leave, please, if you wouldn't mind giving us a quick review on the Apple iTunes. And then also, if you enjoyed the interview, please give us a quick mention on social media as well. Help us spread the word of the podcast at Gary Kernin on Instagram, at MSC Education on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.